Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of intriguing and knowledgeable people. For centuries, millennia even, the general scholarly consensus was that we would never be able to get any clear sense of what music from the ancient Greek world actually sounded like. But now, thanks to the pioneering work of Armand Dangor and his dedicated music colleagues, the clouds are most definitely beginning to part, as can be seen in the captivating YouTube video, Rediscovering Ancient Greek Music. As both a University of Oxford classicist and professional musician, it was perhaps not terribly surprising that Armand would turn his attention to this vexing task, but the story behind his research is, as usual, significantly more complicated than you might first think. Perhaps the best way to put it is that after having become transfixed by Latin and Greek from the age of seven or so, Armand is determined to do his utmost to combine his scholarly understanding and wide-ranging curiosity to actively imagine many different overlapping aspects of what daily life was really like in the classical world, such as his quest to deduce what Socrates was like as a young man, the thrust of his intriguing book, Socrates in Love. Many people parrot cliches about how the ancient world is still very much alive to those who are determined to explore it, but Armand clearly believes it. Your background is quite unusual, and I think plays quite a role, has a bearing on your future work in in all sorts of ways, obvious and perhaps not so obvious. So I was wondering if I could prevail upon you to go way back and talk a little bit about your origins, both in terms of your burgeoning love and appreciation and expertise in music, and also your interests in, in the classical world. I suppose the most important thing to say is that um, I was lucky enough to go to an extremely good school in the 1960s and 
and 1970s, where Latin was still being taught. So I started Latin at a prep school in London uh, at the age of seven. And um, my teacher there was a classicist who thought that I should also enjoy learning Greek and took me aside and taught me Greek from the age of about eight. And this was presumably because you were uh, transfixed with Latin. You were obviously yeah. showing great enthusiasm and love and, and enjoyment from that experience, I suppose. Yes, anyway. that's exactly right. And it's, I have to say, let me name the man. John Evans was a brilliant teacher. He walked into the classroom on day one and he drew a picture. He was a wonderful draftsman. He drew a picture on the blackboard with deft strokes of a, of a girl. And he said, um, hike est puella. And I thought, I know what he means. It means, I, I mean, I hadn't done any Latin in my life. I was seven. I thought, oh, I'm speaking Latin already. And he then looked at it and said, amo puellam. And I thought, I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this was my introduction to the world of Latin by this wonderful John Evans. And then he took me aside after a, a few months because I was showing such enthusiasm, which I still feel, I have to say. Um, and um, he said, well, you know, you should learn Greek as well. And it was like, oh, wonderful. He drew a, a little picture book for me with the most wonderful pictures of, of little Greek men doing things. Um, and the one I remember most of all is three men of, increasing in size, each holding a bag of money. <laughs> and, and the words in Greek were plusios, plusioteros, plusiotatos, which means rich, richer, richest. <laughs> and I thought, well, I mean, just, just, just remembering that image and thinking, it's all such fun. And to me, that is so important. And, you know, I advocate that you have to make teaching fun. Whatever you're doing, what is the point of making it dreary? And however hard it is, find a way of getting it across. So that was my um, introduction to the classics. It, it went on from there. Um, I, uh, you know, learned, uh, I knew very good Latin and Greek by the time I was at school, at secondary school. Uh, and I, you know, I, I pity some of my students who start Latin and Greek when they're in 15 or 16 and then come to university, because it's never going to be the same as feeling familiar with those languages very early on, and then going on to read these wonderful texts, these tragedies, Homer, the poetry of Catullus and Horace, and so on, while you're still in your teens. So I was very lucky to, to, to do that early on. I was curious to know how singular that experience was. Were you part of a, a small group? Were you the only one who had the opportunity to learn Greek? You, you mentioned that John Evans took you aside and, and based upon your enthusiasm, thought that it would be a great opportunity for you and you would enjoy learning Greek. Uh, how rare uh, an event was that? Yeah, I'm afraid I was the only one. <laughs> You're right. It was entirely rare in the school. I was the only one he taught and um, and the only one who want, went on to get scholarships in the classics and become a classics professor in due course. Well, you must but have I, made him very proud. He must have been he must have been very excited to see your progression. Did you keep in touch with him throughout? Yes, I did. And he and he was and and he he's I think I haven't been in touch for a few years, but even uh, in his quite old age now, yeah, I think he's been very pleased to see that I've gone on and made a bit of a name for myself in, and always mention him. And and I, I, you know, he would say, "Oh, I did nothing," but of course, 
good teachers say that, don't they? Indeed. Indeed. So, so I cut you off. So, so you won a scholarship and then you, you went to, to Oxford, I believe, uh, to do your undergraduate work. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's right. But before I went to Oxford, I, in those days, most, uh, most pupils took a year off before they went to university, a gap year, as it was called. And um, I, it was 1976, I took a gap year and I decided I would try and increase my musical skills during that year. And I got a place to do so at the Royal College of Music in London. Uh, with a wonderful cellist, uh, cello teacher called uh, Anna Shuttleworth, who I'm sorry to say has only just died at the age of 88, I think. Um, but um, uh, when I was doing it, while I was uh, within a few months, it became clear that I was also doing quite well on the musical front. And although I had a scholarship to go to Oxford for 1976, uh, later that year, I asked my tutor if I could postpone it for another two years so I could do the full performers course. That's what it was called in those days. In order to become a performer, you went to the Royal College to become a performer. I just thought if I did the full three years, it would make all the difference. And I think it did. Uh, I was actually, um, I started the piano when I was five. My mother was a pianist and, um, you know, I mean, she was an amateur pianist and she uh, enthused me with that. But uh, then I took up the cello when I was 11 and I got even more enthusiastic about that. That that was another strange story because I had a younger brother who was learning the cello but not doing any practice and couldn't really really get on with it. And my mother didn't want to tell the teacher that she was stopping the payments. And so she said, (laughs) well, my pianist son will take over (laughs) for a while. And I thought, I'll show him. So there I was at 11 learning the cello and getting very good results very quickly because it was such a gorgeous instrument um and i could feel that immediately and and, how do you, uh, how, so so back up a little bit so you start piano when you're five uh you're making uh, wonderful progress uh, before this incident with your brother and continuing payments and so forth had you had a desire to play a string instrument at all were you thinking oh gosh it would be interesting to somehow couple uh, my my pianistic studies with violin or cello or viola or something like that had, had were those the thoughts that were going through your mind so that you were primed as it were when you're when you had this opportunity or or was it not like that? No, it was like that, and the reason it was, in fact, because I had because I was one of three brothers. My older brother, we're about a year and a bit between each of us. My older brother was learning the violin. My younger brother was learning the cello, and for a very short while, we even had a piano trio, and we could play. those three instruments together. Uh, But then my older brother and his violin, although he did actually play very well, he he had some problems with his back. He had some scoliosis in his spine and it caused a lot of discomfort, so he stopped. Uh, My younger brother was less interested and so he stopped. And so I was the only one holding the musical uh, line and um, I was still learning the piano and the cello then became an opportunity and um, actually the instrument that I still play was one that was bought for my younger brother in those days for I think it was a few hundred pounds it's now worth tens of thousands um, as you know these instruments suddenly become quite valuable to the 19th century French made cello and um, it, it makes the most beautiful sound and uh, it's just one of these things where 
I, I pick it up and and it it sounds like a a beautiful instrument. So I, I w- wanted to to learn it, um, and uh, I got the bit between my teeth when the opportunity arose. And um, I'd say that by the time I went to secondary school, age twelve or thirteen, I was uh, determined that the cello would be very much part of my life. Um, and so then at the end of that period at school, age 17, 18, I think I was, um, uh, I, I applied, got into the Royal College of Music to do piano and cello jointly with the aim uh, partly of becoming a concert pianist rather than cellist, but really becoming so enamoured of the cello as an instrument and also realising that you just can't do everything. You know, there were such talented people at the Royal College then. And of course, now the talent is massive all around the world. I mean, some of these incredible uh, pianists and cellists um, that uh, I, you know, I think I would have had to be totally single-minded to make half a decent profession as a soloist. Uh, I know I would have had to be, but of course I had so many other interests and this is a problem. How was I going to pursue everything in my life? The answer is I've been very lucky and I've been managed and I've managed to pursue the classics uh, at a very high professional level and to keep going with the cello, at least in chamber music groups. Um, And as you rightly say, to find a way actually of making my musical knowledge work to give me an interdisciplinary insight into uh, the research on ancient Greek music that I've done in the last 10 years. It's, it seems exceptionally rare to me, and perhaps it's not, perhaps it's my ignorance, but it seems exceptionally rare to me to be at that level with two instruments, that alone, forgetting about the classical uh, aspect, to be to be double majoring, as it were, with the piano and the cello. Is that correct? I mean, to be, to, is that something you mentioned, your, your, your very uh, multifarious interests in all sorts of different directions, and we're going to hopefully get to some of those. But just looking at it from the perspective of playing, um, I, I read somewhere that you played the, the Greek piano concerto and, yes. and so forth. And, and, and yes. to be at that level of, of pianistic virtuosity at a, at a relatively young age, and then to be aspiring to perhaps be a performer, professional performer with the cello, that seems quite rare to me. Uh, is it? Yes, I say it probably is quite rare. And um, it's one of those things that happened by accident, really. Um, and, uh, you know, playing the Greek piano concerto at school was in many ways the high point because I went on to the Royal College of Music and, you know, I would have wanted to play dozens of other concerti like Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff and so on, um, as well as, you know, extremely uh, taxing music of other kinds on the piano. But I never really did. And part, part of the reason was that I was concentrating on improving my cello during that period um so i think you're right it's it's unusual to to be quite good at both instruments on the other hand if you uh, <laughs> uh, there is a, a wonderful um pianist called uh, Julia Fisher who is also a wonderful violinist and she gives concerts at the highest level on both instruments now that is extraordinary it seems to me right. 
So was there ever a time, I just, so just indulge me for a moment, sorry to be going on about this, but was there ever a time when uh, you would look at a piece of music, cello sonata, and, and you, would, you would ask yourself, which part do I want to play? Do I want to play the, the, the piano? Do I want to play the cello part or Rachmaninoff? Or, or, I mean, some of these great, beautiful, yeah. incredibly yeah. lyrical, wonderful, powerful works for yes. cello and piano. Yes, uh, yes. It must be an interesting situation for you to, to, have, to have to ask yourself, which, which side do you want to play, as it were? Well, um, no, I very quickly decided that I wanted to be the cello line. As you say, in Rachmaninoff or Brahms or whatever, something about the sound of that instrument and the feel, the sheer physical feel of the cello strings, uh, the vibrato, the uh, the use of the bow. I don't know. I became much more obsessed with the cello than I ever was with the piano. I mean, the piano is basically a percussion instrument, and so you, uh, you know, you have to create this fantasy that it has a continuous singing line and you know the great pianists do that um also the repertoire for the piano must be 10 times what the repertoire is for for the cello if if not more as i say i did come across uh, when i was at music college and and before i should say uh, some of the most talented players um, one of the things I was never good at, because I have a fantastic musical memory, I mean, I can play piano pieces that I've learned by heart. I mean, I could still play now for several hours, sonatas and uh, concerto movements and so on, that I know without the music. But that meant that what I did was never really develop uh, a sight-reading ability mm. that the best pianists have. And um, if you don't have that, then you don't enjoy picking up the score and playing the the piano bit. So, um, you know, whether it was accident or design, I ended up on the on the on the side of the cello rather than out of the piano. And actually, only this morning, I was for the first time since COVID, um, I had my trio, piano trio, early this morning, um, uh, coming round, and we played through. Uh, the Brahms B major, um, which we hopefully will perform. Um, uh, yeah, we call the, the London Brahms Trio, and we started 10 years ago with Brahms, but we haven't since played it. <laughs> I mean, we picked it up and played it again, but it's such an enormous pleasure to play that Brahms Trio with this wonderful opening lyrical cello line. And uh, although I haven't been practicing a lot over COVID, after about... 15, 20 minutes, suddenly the cello opens up and that gorgeous sound then starts to emerge and things start to ring. And, and, and that's what I love. And oh, one of the reasons I'm mentioning this is I happen to have been so lucky to find a wonderful violinist and a wonderful pianist. Uh, both of them are kind of ex-professionals. But the pianist, I can put any music in front of him hmm. and he will play it beautifully sight reading and that to me is an extraordinary he's actually a professor of mathematics <laughs> but he has at oxford and he has this extraordinary skill to be able to see something and transmute it and i can't do that so it's a skill but it's also presumably something that he's he's worked on to a considerable he, not only worked on he actually practices every day i mean unlike me who might pick up the cello every few months in, in order to practice for a concert um, he practices on a daily, and you've got to do that if you're going to be that good. You've got to do it for an hour a day. 
Right. There's also this element of physicality with the cello, or at least as it appears to me as, as an outsider, this, this extremely tactile sense of being able to wrap yourself around the instrument and, and, and make physical contact with it in a way that uh, seems different than, uh, than, than, than other instruments. Is, is there something to that or is that just my overly romantic sense of, uh, of the situation? I definitely think there's something to it. I mean, you're hugging this instrument. You're not hammering it like you do on the piano from above. You know, it's not just the movement of your fingers. It's the movement of your whole body, really. You know, your arms are spreading, are embracing the instrument. Um, you know, you're using your fingers on the left hand to create, you know, the pitch of notes. But with your right hand, you are creating almost a sort of magic. I mean, one of my teachers was a great Baroque cellist called Anna Belsma. He was a, a Dutchman. And he said, it, you know, this is our magic wand. The bow is the magic <laughs> wand of the cellist. And with it, you have to make magic. It's so much about what you can do with the bow. People think it's all about your left hand with the fingers running up and down. It's not about that. It's about the beauty of the sound you can produce. You can draw out of the strings with a bow. So I, I, I interrupted you. Uh, it was a very enjoyable diversion, but uh, let me allow you to get back to things. So, so I had left you where you had won the scholarship to Oxford. You had taken uh, a gap year, uh, more than one year, but you had taken some time to go to the... Well, I extended the, it for three years. That was right. the point. Yeah. So uh, and to get this professional level accreditation from the Royal College of Music and and then what happens? So then you go back to Oxford, or do you go to Oxford, rather? Yes, I, I go to Oxford to take up my scholarship. Um, I was at Merton College, and I, I then read what's called Literae Humaniores, which is the classical subject, so, which is uh, Greek and Latin languages, literature, philosophy, and history. It's a four-year course because there's so much of it. The first In those days, the first five terms you spent reading tons of Greek and Latin literature, just vast amounts of it. And then for the second half of the course, after a very big exam consisting of 10 three-hour papers, <laughs> uh, quite a, ma a mammoth exam, um, you went on and uh, worked uh, in philosophy and history. That was traditional greats. You you were assumed to have read most of the literature that mattered in the first five terms at Oxford, and therefore you could read historical authors like uh, um, Tacitus and Suetonius in Latin or Thucydides in Greek, um, which you know, gave you the basis for historical analysis of the ancient world, and similarly philosophical uh, books like Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Ethics in Greek, uh, uh, with all the philosophical argumentation that goes with being a philosopher, uh, which I really loved, actually. Uh, so it was a fantastic combination of disciplines, um, language, literature, and then history and philosophy. And I believe in that combination. I, I, you know, I know that it's very hard for students who haven't done it from a young age to feel that they have the capacity to embrace such a vast subject uh, to anything to a degree that, that they would want to. But, um, and it certainly didn't feel to me as if I had done anything but just started on a path. 
but this was the problem. You know, you work really hard for four years. And during that time, I was also giving concerts on the cello and playing concerti and so on. But it's, it's really tough intellectual marathon to read the, the classics at Oxford. And I came out and I felt kind of exhausted. So whereas others might have just gone on and done a master's and then a doctorate, um, I felt I had to go back to music and give that a go. And so I did. And so I, I tried to then become a professional cellist. I got some engagements. I played in some orchestras and I acquired new teachers. Um, but I was already, I would have been, uh, when I finished Oxford 1983, I was already nearly 25. And, and, and describe your state of mind to me because it's, again, you obviously have so many interests and you, you, uh, you do them at a very high level. But was there a time when you were seriously contemplating not going to Oxford at all? I mean, you had gone gone through this three-year program. You were deeply immersed in music. You you were uh, you probably had some aspirations as a young person. Uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. Of becoming mm-hmm. a professional musician at that stage, was there a time when you thought to yourself, "I'm not even going to go to Oxford. I'm just going to try my luck at at, at being a professional musician." How did no, that work for you? No, yeah. I know. I never. I never thought that I would not go to Oxford. Though I did hope, as you rightly say, uh, I did have the ambition to become a professional musician um, at some stage. Um, but I. What I what happened was when I asked for the extra two years, having you know, got the year off, I wanted to do the full three year course. Um, my then tutor at Oxford said, "Fine, but you have to read the following." And he gave me a list of books, and uh, you know, all of Homer in Greek, all of Virgil in Latin. I mean, of course, <laughs> what that meant was that I was enjoying those things on the side when I was really practicing eight hours a day, scales and arpeggios on on the cello mainly, but also somewhat on the piano. Um, So they were a diversion. And the classics was something that I absolutely turned to for for love. I I enjoyed going through various commentaries during that period. I, I went through the commentary commentaries on Hesiod, uh, so he's a contemporary of Homer, and um, Martin West, a great Oxford scholar, had written two magisterial commentaries. And, and to read a poem of, say, 1,200 lines accompanied by a commentary of several hundred pages means you're just learning everything to do with the world of that poem and the world of the words used by that poem and the expressions and the grammar. Um, so... I really got immersed in that, and I wanted to go back to Oxford. I wanted to go back to the study of the classics, but armed with the ability to play uh, much better than I would have had I not had that opportunity. Um, And that's what I did. But it was a bit of an oscillation, because I say when I finished with my Oxford course, I then wanted to go back to music and see if I could pick up where I'd left off. And I even went in for a few of these competitions, um, which, you know, spur careers, cello competitions and so on, but uh, got nowhere. And as I say, I I was too old to really resume that career as a soloist. I think I could have become um, an orchestral player, which is not an easy thing to do, um, or perhaps a chamber musician. But um, I uh, just was not able at that stage to resume a career successfully as a, as a soloist, which was I kind of hoped to be. 
Right. I mean, having said that, you know, soloists play all sorts of things that they don't necessarily want to because they're asked to. And that's true of any profession. And it's a good thing, I think, because it means that you increase your repertoire, you learn all sorts of things that you might not otherwise know. But at the same time, it's part of it's part of the job. It's like, you know, as, as a professional classics, I've been asked for so to do so many things that I wouldn't have thought I'd particularly want to read or study and then thought that was really good that I was asked to do that. Right. And actually, I should say that although I had taken an interest in ancient Greek music when I was a schoolboy, it was only because a... Um, a colleague of mine in Cambridge in 2000 asked if I could give a paper on ancient music uh, at a conference in Cambridge that I resumed an interest in it. Thank God I did, because it led to so much that has been incredibly productive. But I thought I'd done enough on that and that uh, you know, it, it, had, it was never going to get any further. Well, in fact, you, you, in, in your clog, you, you give a, uh, uh, an anecdote about applying for this uh, fellowship at all, uh, at all Souls. And I believe it was Isaiah Berlin that you were, you were yes. uh, talking to, who seemed to be interested after trying to impress upon you all the famous cellists who he, he had met, <laughs> um, about the possibility of perhaps you combining your interests as a as a cellist, as a, as a musician, and as a classicist in being able to penetrate the secret of uh, ancient music, to which, if, if memory serves from having read this, you replied something to the effect of, well, that's impossible, or, or, or not people believe that that's, that, that, that that's not a productive yeah. way to sp- spend one's time. So, I mean, you, it had even been explicitly yes. suggested to you, and you had yes. uh, rejected it to some extent. Is that, is that a fair assessment? That is right. That is right, yes. And, and I'd reject it because what there had been written about ancient Greek music and the few scraps that had been transcribed looked so unpromising. There were, you know, a part, there were these microtonal things, which is, you know, not tones and semitones, but strange shadings of, of, of pitch, which were hard to understand. Uh, there were so many gaps in the music that survived. And those bits of music that survived that were longer than just bits of gaps uh, seemed rather boring. They didn't have wonderful harmonies. And I just thought, well, what's the point? What is the point of pursuing this? Because the Greeks may have thought their music was wonderful, but we never will. And actually, that is what I think a lot of people find because they come to it um, thinking in terms of Western classical music. And that is a big mistake. I mean, this this is music that existed a thousand years before Western classical music really even started to exist for more than a thousand, fifteen hundred years, really. And um, we have to think of it in terms of a folk tradition. And although the music that survives and the music we know of wasn't what we call folk music, it wasn't dancing around campfires, it was elite music, it was performed music, it was music that was presented to... Uh, sophisticated audiences, it is not going to be anything like the idiom that we imagine advanced music should be in with, you know, huge harmonic resources, uh, massive instrumental uh, variety, none of that. Uh, Once you get your mind around that, and I think it's very important that people do, especially classical musicians, then it all starts to fit in. And one of the things I've 
really focused on and will continue to is ethnomusicology, thinking about the music from the point of view of Balkan traditions, Far Eastern traditions, Near Eastern traditions, Arabic music, Persian music, Indian music. And once you think in those terms, it all, I think, starts to make sense. And what makes sense is how the Greek musical tradition leads to the Western musical tradition, which is something that people were not sure about. But I now feel in myself is clearly demonstrable, even though it's, you know, even though the evidence is terribly slight. It's like we have a few stepping stones from ancient Greek music to modern Western music. But I think those stepping stones lead directly from one to the other. Well, let's talk a little bit in more detail about those stepping stones, because it's a fascinating story. Your recent work plunging back into an area which combines your two, let's just say, most intense loves, perhaps, uh, namely the classical world and, and, and music, to be able to recreate some sense of reconstruction of what that music actually was. I've read some uh, some of your work on this. I've seen some of the YouTube videos. I'd like to perhaps recapitulate a little bit, and you can tell me where uh, I'm going wrong. But I have some, I have an array of various questions because some things made sense to me and some things didn't make sense to me. So I'd, right. I'd like to try to get uh, some sense of it. So my understanding is that we have a, a reasonably clear sense going back to, say, Homeric odes, uh, that, first of all, that we know that these were accompanied by music. And in fact, I think it was Milman Perry and other people recognized that it, it way back that it, it, that these uh, odes were to be sung and, and there was a musical nature to them. And my understanding is we have references throughout the literature that, that these were to be accompanied by or accompanied with a lyre and so forth and so on. So we have a sense historically that this is rooted in a, in a musical tradition and there is an understanding that we can at least begin to construct aspects of the meter, uh, the rhythm of, of these songs, because of the nature of the poetry and the, and, and the syllables and so forth. Is that a, is that a fair starting point? That's a, that's a very fair starting point. Um, I mean, on the whole, we don't call the song music of Homer odes, so there's no reason why we shouldn't, because all the ode really means in Greek is singing <laughs> but we you know we talk about the homeric epics the epics of homer were sung the odes which are smaller individual pieces of music by people like pindar were composed to be sung and there is evidence in all of these um uh, songs in in the texts of all of these lyrics and the lyrics of all of these songs uh, of what kind of singing might uh, might have been expected but the Key thing, well, there, there are several keys. You mentioned meter. Meter is an artificial construct which tells you how to measure out a line of song. Uh, they didn't have a musical system of, of notating rhythm. that we They never developed it, of notating rhythm as we do. Uh, so instead, they took a line of verse that might have a certain oral shape and they gave it a name. And these names then become the basis of metrical terminology, which can sound extremely off-putting because m m people who study meter learn them all and then they learn all the terminology. None of this terminology would have been known to ancient singers. Right. They just sang in rhythms and in quantitative 
rhythms. In other words, long and short syllables. We might call them quarter notes and eighth notes, you know, combinations of those. And how did they get transmitted to us? They, they got transmitted to us in the writing. So the, the written words of Greek have natural long and short syllables. And therefore, when you read them, you can get the rhythm out of those. Okay, so that's what I wanted to ask you because I yeah. don't I don't speak ancient Greek, so I don't understand that. Uh, I'm not obviously arguing with you, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand uh, the, the, how natural these things are because I can imagine that uh, that it would be possible, certainly logically possible, for two people to be given two texts and pronounce them in two different ways. But what I'm hearing from you is that's not really the way it was. We have we have some clear certainty in terms of the duration of the syllables, in terms of the rhythms, that this text should be pronounced in this particular way. Is that because of the fact that we know that they are poetic and therefore there's a certain phrasing in order for it to make sense and that we have studied this over centuries and so forth and so on? How is it that we're able to even recreate that with with such a high degree of confidence? So, as you rightly say, it has been studied over centuries, and there are a couple of massive handbooks written in antiquity, uh, which ah, talk okay. about meter in, in enormous depth. I mean, names that you don't ever come across, even as a student of the classics, but when you start doing doctoral work on meter, you learn about people like Hephaestion and Quiroboscus, and people who wrote uh, treatises on meter. And there are perhaps uh, two dozen uh, not so much treatises, but you know, apart from major treatises, there are other long treatments of different metrical uh, schemes that were used by the Greeks. So, yes, uh, it is a tradition that, um, that that informs us very clearly what the sounds, uh, what the rhythms were. But the if you think about it, if you're creating a text of a song and your alphabet is essentially phonetic which is what the greeks did they created an alphabet which tried to mimic the sounds that they made then that song emerges the rhythm emerges so even if it were a piece of prose and within that prose someone wrote something rhythmical it would be possible to read it and say ah here is a bit of um you know of dactylic hexameter within the prose um um, so uh, in Latin, for example, um, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius writes a sentence once and notices that he has just used a metrical form called hendecasyllable, and he says so. So we have this written thing, oops, I've just written a hendecasyllable, <laughs> because he reads it and he, go, he hears that rhythm, which is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Ah, I've just written this, this Latin, and, and that's what it sounds like. So the syllables do emerge from the writing, unlike English, you know, where we don't know whether a syllable is long or short. So if we have a word like happy, is it hap, is it long because there are two Ps after it, or is it short? Well, most of us would say it actually sounds short. Happy days, da-da-dum. You don't say happy days unless you're trying to be, you know, try, trying to sort of stress it in some way. Uh, happy birthday to you. Now, there, you see, we can add music to words, and the two, which is, of course, short, happy birthday to you, becomes long. Happy birthday to you. So in English, we can superimpose music on words and they turn long into short and vice versa. They didn't do that in Greek. The, certainly in the classical Greek world, they 
use the natural syllabic lengths, and those syllabic lengths are uh, inscribed into the words. And, of course, we have the analysis by metrical scholars. So combination of all those things makes us extremely certain about the rhythms of, of much ancient Greek music. And that was a very important starting point for me because right. I've always been very keen on meter, but always recognized that it is not just a, an artificial exercise, which so many scholars turn it into, but it really tells us about the rhythms in which this music was sung. Okay, so you've convinced me about the rhythms uh, and, and the meter and so forth. Uh, let's move on to the, to the pitch and the melody. There are several things in your demonstration that I, I, I didn't understand. First, getting to the pitch, what correspondence, if any, is made in trying to determine the various pitches in speaking ancient Greek with these, uh, these diacritics, these accents that I understand were first developed several centuries after the golden age of Pericleon Athens, somewhere around, I think, the second century BC in Alexandria or something like that, uh, which in itself is sort of an uh, an odd story. I, I guess it's because uh, people didn't feel they needed to have these accents. I guess the story is, so tell me. My understanding is that people in the 5th century or the 6th century BC, or perhaps even the 4th century, didn't feel that they needed any such indications. Uh, I don't think they had punctuation then either. I think there were all sorts of things that they didn't have. Right. And then several centuries uh, after that, more ambiguity started to arise and and there was some codification that took place. And so we began to get indications, that is we, centuries hence, millennia hence, began to get indications of the the pitch that was being invoked in various words through these accents that were developed in the second century. Is that uh is that a fair assessment of things? That, that is fair. Um, uh, of course, one has to remember that writing, the writing system of the Greeks, which is the alphabet, which they adapted from the alphabet of Phoenicia, didn't exist until around 700 BC. And even then, it wasn't widely known um, for, for two centuries, perhaps until uh, 500, it would have been quite uh, rare, perhaps, you know, 5% uh, of, of the Greek world would have actually been able to use that writing system. Um, then you get a kind of growth of, of literary uh, products. And uh, that also, more important perhaps, is a growth of materials that allow you to write on papyrus. So if you don't have a big stock of paper, Writing is not going to be something you can do. We know we have graffiti from around 700 BC. You can scratch stuff on rocks. Um, we're told that they used to use skins. Well, to write on skins is extremely difficult. Dried sheepskin, you know, you have to incise uh, letters into it. It's not something you can, you can't just pick up a pen and do that. But once you, when you have paper, which is what papyrus is, and papyrus grows in Egypt, and stocks of this started to come into Greece, we know from uh, from around 600, but really uh, perhaps not until 500 was it quite common. And then it was still expensive. So papyrus and ink, ink and paper make all the difference. So it's the fifth century, it's the golden age, as you call it, when people actually start writing in some quantity. Though even then, um, you know, we're talking about a tiny proportion of the whole of the Greek world being able to do this, uh, being more than what's called functionally literate. They can maybe read their name but they won't be writing books or plays. 
Um, and then things start to be written down. And uh, by the third century BC, when the cultural focus moves to Alexandria in Egypt, because of the conquest of Alexander the Great, that becomes the great city, the great library of Alexandria, and a lot of scholarly Greeks in Alexandria, setting, trying to trying to to codify, as you say, uh, and then eventually, what happens? And the way the story I tell is that this is when the Roman world starts to encroach on the Greeks, right? So 2nd century BC, the Romans are becoming the great military power, and that is the age in which they turn Greece into a colony of Rome. But the, the, the Romans are don't have their own literary culture to the same extent at all, uh, or musical culture. And, and they come across the Greeks, and they're trying to talk a bit of Greek, but they haven't got the same musical ear. So they go into a um, a f- they go into a Greek uh, city and they see a nice temple and they say Kalon Hieron, which in Greek means nice temple. And the Greek ear goes, oh, we don't say it like that on, in a monotonous tone. We say Kalon, our voice goes up, Hieron. And, and so this is when a man called Aristophanes of Byzantium creates the diacritical marks, the marks that go over the letters uh, that tell foreigners, and this is what we're told, he did it to tell foreigners what their language sounds like. The Greeks themselves didn't need it. Why would they? They were doing it for the non-Greeks to try and preserve something in their own language. When they realize the non-Greeks are kind of important, then that's when they need to create accents. They don't have to do it for themselves. And in, you know, the Greeks themselves in Alexandria, there are tens of thousands, perhaps, of pages of Greek writing letters, contracts, all sorts of wonderful things from Greek Alexandria and and the uh, Egyptian world, none of them use accents. So they don't put the accents on their own written Greek. So accents are invented in order to help non-Greeks to hear that Greek words have an up and down, melodic up and down in certain ways. It's not that that melodic up and down makes a difference to the meaning uh, in in the way that it does in, in Chinese, where if you say, Ma, with uh, one accent, it means a horse, and with another, it means a mother. Mm. <laughs> um, so you don't, you, know, you don't want to confuse ac- uh, the pitches in, in Chinese in, in that way. In Greek, it makes hardly any difference. There are only a dozen or so words where it would make a difference uh, as to the meaning uh, if you accented the word differently. But nonetheless, there is a system of accents which is applied and which is preserved as a result of Aristophanes of Byzantium creating three accent marks, uh, one of which is just that the voice goes up and we're told by a grammarian that the voice went up within the compass of a musical interval of a fifth. So, that's a fifth. And if you say kalos, which means beautiful, kalos, your voice moves up. It doesn't have to go Carlos, as it were, musically that high. But he worked out that that was roughly the compass of the voice when it moves up for that acute accent. And then there's the um, the circumflex accent where the voice accent where the voice goes up and down, um, and that lengthens a vowel. So if you're going to have as it were, two-part and up and down on a vowel. Clearly, that vowel has to be long. So you only find that circumflex over 
naturally long vowels. Um, so that system then gives us a clear indication of where the pitches fell on Greek words. And that's musical. So we have this very valuable piece of information, or at least a category of information. And then we have these melodic markings on various texts that you were describing in the video. So my understanding is there is something to the extent of 50 or 60 of these texts that are still extant that have these markings on them. I think the first one was actually found by Galileo's father. Is that is that is in in, in Florence? Is that uh, is is that correct? Or, or but anyway, tell tell me. For, so you can answer that question. But anyway, tell me um, a, a, about how that works because you show this picture in the in this uh, wonderful video, rediscovering ancient Greek music, which I would certainly urge everybody to uh, to to check out. And and you see this text, and then on top of the text, there are these various letters, and. For me, again, as somebody who is uh, not the slightest bit expert in this area, I look at this and I say, how does one know from looking at some letters above uh, text that those necessarily refer to melodic markings? How does one know what sorts of melodic markings they refer to? How do you put the pieces of that puzzle together? Well, again, very interestingly, this is a tradition that has never been lost. So um, there are writings from antiquity, which we still have, by uh, musical theorists, people like Aristoxenus, who was 3rd century BC, and uh, Aristides, who's later a Roman writer, but who bases his, uh, his book on music very heavily on Aristoxenus. So where we have lost... Uh, words from Aristoxenus, we have them in Aristides. Um, so uh, th- those have been texts which have been copied, manuscripts which have been copied and recopied, and they give us details of musical notation and uh, how it is used. And those were then compiled into tables in latish antiquity, probably around the 5th century AD, again, something that has never been lost to the tradition, a manuscript by a man called Olypius, in which he creates tables showing us what these letter symbols indicate in terms of intervals. And, you know, the tables of Olypius are there in manuscript form, copied, recopied, and we have a modern edition in which we can look at it and say, ah, he tells us that the interval between X and Y, or A and B, or alpha and beta, or whatever it is, is a quarter of a tone, or it's a a whole tone, or a semitone. And so this is all laid out for us. It's just a question of learning it and interpreting it. Um, It's not that we actually have to decipher what those symbols are. We're told. We're told in Greek texts at length and in detail that when you read these particular notes, these are what those notes refer to in terms of intervals. Now, that doesn't tell us, of course, what the absolute pitch is, but that's uh, a bit of a, um, a red herring because there never has really been absolute pitch until Hertz came along and said this is what an A should be, uh, you know, 440 hertz or 415 hertz. Um, there was a general sense that this is where you pitch your A, and they had that general sense. Uh, that is what they based their musical system on. Um, and they said, well, if you pitch your A, uh, then um, your B is a note above it, a tone above it, uh, and your C 
is going to be a semitone above that. So you then get ba ba bam a b c in in our, now this is our modern terminology. They did it for their terminology, and they they created a system based on their alphabet, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Um, and in fact, it doesn't go up like ours. It goes down from alpha downwards, but it doesn't go down note by note. It goes down uh, every three. So alpha, beta, gamma uh, are different variants of one note, and delta, epsilon, zeta, the next slot down, are different variants of a tone below that. And it's not as if um, they are used in the same system. So it's a quite complex system, but again, we are given this in enormous detail. It's not like they, they used alpha, beta, gamma to suggest variants of a note within every system. They might just use the alpha, but um, they had uh, sets of sc- what we might call scales or scale systems. They call them harmonii. They're generally translated as modes. Of course, harmonii, where our word harmony comes from. And they had different modes. They gave them names, Dorian, Lydian, Mixolydian, <laughs> Hypolydian, um, Ionian, and so on. They gave them these names, and each of these modes was associated with a set of notes. And in these tables of Lippius that I mentioned, uh, he will tell us the Dorian uses the following set of notes, and it may be, you know, alpha, delta, theta. And so we know that the Dorian uses that particular set of notes, and it may be seven or eight notes in the case of Dorian. We're given eight notes, uh, and um, we know what the intervals are. So we can then create that scale and say, this is what the Dorian scale was. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off but but this is this is somewhat confusing to me because listening to you i i think to myself okay uh there is a complicated very detailed structure that has been delineated there seems to be all sorts of clues as to meter and pitch and uh, as you say the intervals it's a it's it's not Self-evident, perhaps one has to do a lot of work, but there's an abundant amount of very explicit text and explanations. So given all of that, why has this been viewed for so long as some impenetrable mystery that we would never be able to unravel? What what has led people to conclude such a thing? Because listening to you, I would think, okay, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but this should be feasible. This should be doable. In fact, when you talk about the modes, I mean, people in music theory still talk about Ionian modes and Dorian modes. And so this is not exactly something which is uh, completely elliptical to, to everybody. So why, given all of that, was there this reputation that it would be an impenetrable nut to crack? You, you, you cite some uh, 
famous music theorist or classicist from the 1930s who said that it's a complete waste of time or you have to be crazy if you're going to be doing something like this. Um, so, so explain that to me because that doesn't make a great deal of sense. There seems to be a real disconnect between the, the, the possibilities of unraveling what was going on and the general perception that it was impossible to do so. Well, let me go back to a character you mentioned who was Galileo's father um, in the Florentine renaissance of the 16th century he is a musician and he is um corresponding with another musician called girolamo mei mei and they are trying to work out what ancient greek music sounded like from the basis of the technical treatises and the discussions but they don't have any real examples they have a few scraps of what turned out to be a second century AD music by a man called Mesomedes, who was a freedman, a freed slave of the Emperor Hadrian, and one of the most famous musical writers of his age, a favorite of Hadrian, the Emperor Hadrian. And they have a few scraps of that, and they have all this theory. And Galilei writes a book um, about this, um, in which he talks about the theory in detail and tries to work out what it actually means musically. So uh, the difficulty is partly that what survived was tremendously technical in terms of uh, modal theory. And indeed, the theory of ethos was predominant. Plato uh, talks a lot about the fact that these modes each have a different character, and the word in Greek is ethos. And uh, People were trying to work out, you know, what did the music sound like to be able to sound noble rather than weak and effeminate? You know, how can you say that a particular scale is going to give you that sense? Well, you know, we can say, well, there's a major scale. If you're going to write something that is happy, you write it in the major and you write it fairly fast. If you want to write something sad, you write it in a minor key and you make sure the tempo is not that fast. I mean, that's sort of pretty obvious, but that's very binary. So how come, you know, you have these various different modes, each have their different ethos according to Plato? So all those questions were things that uh, May and Galilei were trying to work out. Um, and they were using the terminology of the ancient writers, modes, enharmonic, um, conjunct, tetrachords, things that to the average musician, uh, you know, don't mean an awful lot. And, um, you know, we talk about an octave scale, but they talked, uh, the ancients had this system of tetrachords, which was um, an interval of a fourth, da, 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 dum, and then another interval of a fourth above that, da, 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 dum. So two tetrachords would make an octave, but only if they were, if they were disjunct. In other words, if the first tetrachord didn't match up with the beginning of the second. So if you go C, D, E, F, and it's disjunct, then you get G, A, B, C, you've got the whole C major scale. But if it's conjunct, in other words, if the second tetrachord begins on the F, you've got a different scale. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then you have to fill in the octave note. So all these technicalities w needed to be thought about and discussed. And uh, they wrote a book in which you know all, all, all the technical terms are discussed, and they couldn't actually see how the music of Mesomedes that they had, the few scraps, really 
helped them to understand how great ancient Greek music was. And this was a great composer of his time, but all he had was scraps without harmony. And they'd already uh, inherited a tradition from Gregorian chant and Sonata de Caesar and so on of a wonderful harmonic system. And they decided, look, you know, let's just compose operas and uh, oratorios as we think they might have been. And then they create, you know, this incredible Western musical tradition, the Italians of the 16th and 17th century, uh, at the basis there, uh, moving away from what they have in terms of evidence and just being musicians and composers. They create wonderful music and we move on from there. So when people start thinking about Greek music, they start thinking technically, they can't find examples that make them think this is great music. And so uh, we have... Uh, musical scholars in the 19th century, for example, two great German musical scholars, Westphal and Rosbach, who write massive tomes in German describing the musical system. And that includes, at the earliest part of that system, includes uh, note intervals that are not whole tones or semitones. And that is when Westphal or Rosfall, Westfall or Rosfall, one of them makes the comment that this music is alien to our ears and we will probably never really understand it because of this use of microtones. Without well, actually, you know, we can still have tonal music in which there are to, there are microtonal intervals that aren't necessarily, you know, going to be so alien to us. Actually, even some modern music, I think of a cello, wonderful cello piece called Shalomo by a composer called Bloch, in which he, you know, he gets the cellist to use these incredibly powerfully effective uh, quarter tone notes. So you don't just hit um, a whole tone, but you use just that quarter tone above it, sliding onto it. So it is possible, of course, to have perfectly tonal music with microtones. But because of those microtones, the German scholars who are the biggest musical scholars of the 19th century and classic classicists decide that this is alien. And unfortunately, that then becomes a bit of a... So perhaps I could put it this way. Let me know if this is, uh, this is a correct way to surmise the situation. Um, you could look at the evidence in front of you, these microtones, and say, because of these microtones and because we don't have any reason to suspect this music will be harmonious and lyrical and impressive. This is further fuel to the fire of, uh, to, to, to confirm our biases, as it were, that this is not music which is really worth paying a great deal of attention to. Or one can approach it with the situation of, well, let's assume that it is lyrical, that it is harmonious, that it has something melodic and, and beautiful about it. And therefore, what we are seeing in these microtones must somehow be interpreted as a means to an end. It is some, some part of overall structure that enables us to recreate this music, but it doesn't in any way a priori deny the possibility that uh, that music will not be uh, harmonious and beautiful to listen to, and therefore there must be some way of approaching it to, to make that notation part and parcel of a, of a procedure to reconstruct this. So it's, it's a question of your, your a priori beliefs going into the system. Do you think this is music that is worth recreating to some extent in our ears, or do you not? Is that a fair way of, of, of looking at the situation? Yeah, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. And I think that 99% um, of scholars thought the, the former, that, you know, we're not going to bother really because it's never going to be something that 
we, we're going to enjoy the sound of. Um, and 1%, uh, really not so much of scholars, but of practical musicians, decided, well, let's make sense of it musically. Let's try and create something that we can hear. And um, you've got some quite, you know, really good attempts like the Atrium Musica in the 1970s, producing a CD of Greek music in which they did add instruments and, um, you know, tambourines and drums and so on, along with trying to get as what they could out of the melodic remains of ancient music. What they couldn't do, what they didn't do was apply that to the earliest pieces of music that we have, um, the most substantial of which is this papyrus from Euripides' play Orestes, where the chorus is singing, and um, which has come down to, down to us in a very um, uh, fragmentary state. Um, so you only get bits of the melodic line but you had enough, and uh, you know, in a way, I'm slightly surprised that uh, musicians didn't try to fill it in. Um, actually, one of the early editors, Von Jan, did uh, add in additional mm. notes into the gaps in order to say this is probably what it was like. Um, but he didn't explain what his principle for doing so was. Uh, so when I had a look at it, I thought, well, there are ways in which we can create principles for understanding that if you have a particular shape that's attached to a word at the beginning of a word, and you have that same word and you have the ending of it with a musical notation, then you can get the whole shape of the word. And it was that sort of recognition that led me to reconstruct the music of that scrap of uh, Euripides, which includes the quarter tones. And that's when I followed up on this insight that a quarter tone doesn't have to mean um, something totally alien to our tonal structures. And in fact, I think in that particular case, didn't. I mean, it may be that, you know, there are other pieces in which quarter tones are used in a different way. But I think I showed, I wrote a couple of articles in which I showed that in this case, the quarter tones really were passing notes to a tonal center. And that's terribly important from, for our ears because once you realize that's the case and that you can reconstruct a musical line that makes sense to our ears, everything changes. You start asking, well, why would Euripides have written music like this if it were indeed Euripides' music, which I think it was? And then you realize that there are very good reasons of expressiveness uh, as well as uh, a recognition of the tonal nature of the Greek language. So, of course, a tonal language, is, you're likely to set music to a tonal language that follows the tones. If the tone naturally goes up on a word like kalos and you set it to music, you might go kalos. You're unlikely to go the other way around. If you do, you'll have a reason for it. Euripides was famously part of an avant-garde musical set where they were violating standard musical forms, in the late 5th century. We hear a lot about this from other sources, from Plato and so on. So this is the new music. Uh, new music, yes. Uh, Euripides was a proponent of this new musical style, which was breaking the bounds. And I have argued, and others have, uh, that you know one of the main changes of this period that makes the new music 
so revolutionary was that the standard way of applying musical melodic uh, shape to words would have used the natural melody of those words, but the new music didn't. It was happy to violate that, and it did so for reasons that, again, are very famous in this period, which is reasons of mimesis, of representing what the words mean. So if you have a word meaning, I jump, and you want to say that musically, our intuition is to go, to go up melodically. This is also the ancient Greek intuition. It's not necessarily true universally, but it was the case, I think, in ancient Greece. We can show that from this papyrus where we have a word meaning to jump up and the music jumps up. And it doesn't have to match the tone of the word itself meaning jump up, which may have a different tonal structure. And therefore, you're likely to occasionally violate that natural setting of words to music. And Euripides does that. And so I think this document that I reconstructed demonstrates beautifully all of these elements. But what it does also is shows us that the Greek intuitions on the whole were those of the Western musical system. In other words, they believe that when you say, I jump up, you go up in melodic uh, scale. And if you say, I am sad, or I beseech you, or I beg, or I lament, which they do in that papyrus, they go down. So we do that. If we want to say something dejectedly, Euripides does that. And you know, if that is the case, then we are talking here about intuitions that go back 1,500 years before Western music starts and yet are the same. But they aren't necessarily found in other musical traditions. They're not found in Indian music, not found in Japanese or Balinese traditions. So surely we are then saying, just a moment, this really is the root of our Western music. This comes through, not just things like, you know, modal scales and so on, which are slightly different every time you find them over the centuries, but this uh, sensibility of what music does expressively comes through from the ancient Greeks. It's curious because one might think that this there would have been some pushback uh, from the citizens of Athens to the new music as it as it manifested itself. But Euripides was a very celebrated playwright. He was somebody who was very well recognized. So there must have been, uh, I would have imagined, a, a significant amount of enthusiasm from his peers, from society. There was quite an endorsement uh, of these new musical traditions that, that he was... Uh, Pioneering, he and his colleagues presumably were pioneering in this. Is that yes, a reasonable fact, thing to surmise? All we get really is pushback. So you say there would have been pushback. I mean, the tradition of the new music has been to follow people like Plato and Aristophanes, who are major writers of whom we have a lot of their words, saying this stuff is degenerate. We need right. to get back to the real proper music, not this kind of modern stuff which is all over the place and doesn't follow the rules and breaks the convention. So Plato, of course, a hugely important uh, writer, dismisses the new music. He wouldn't have this kind of music in his ideal society, you know, Plato's Republic. And he wouldn't have a lot of things in his ideal society. I mean. No, but this particular <laughs> style, he, he, you know, I mean, so he would have Homer and Hesiod, who presumably he's thinking of being as sung to the old simple tunes that were used in you know, the 8th century BC. Uh, we possibly can construct a four-note 
a scale to which we can sing all of Homer's epic. So something very simple and maybe very moving to an ancient Greek ear is something that Plato would allow, but he will not allow all this music that violates the laws of melody and harmony and rhythm as he hears it. So when we found in the 19th, when, when a, a papyrus turned up of Timotheus, who was one of these avant-garde musicians, with his words, um, interestingly, the first <laughs> uh, editors, uh, the great uh, scholar Vilamovitz, said this, this is an example of the kind of degenerate music <laughs> that Plato is talking about. You can see the words all over the place. You know, the melody must have been similarly really you know, really bad stuff, you know, stuff that you'd want to ban. You know, this is not re- interesting, great literature. Now, of course, we've changed our mind. Timotheus is fascinating. A modern scholarship uh, realizes that this man was one of the most popular musicians of his day. We're told that. He was still being sung, we know, in second century AD Arcadia. Can you imagine? From the end of the fifth wow. century, five, six hundred years later, how can we say the Beatles are going to be sung in six hundred years? This man was still being sung. So, yes, although what we hear is what Plato says is, you know, this is terrible. This is the same as the old conservative critic saying, oh, this jazz, it's terrible. It's sexualized. It's all over the place. It's not good old classical music. Oh, this pop. Now, I mean, which is which is more successful? You know, I'm sorry to say Beethoven, you know, pales into insignificance compared to a rap musician today in terms of the number of people who want to listen to that kind of music. And that was the case in ancient Athens. They, we are told that um, some of these new musicians, there's a piper called Pronomus, filled the theatre and they went wild, we are told, over his gyrations and expressions of his face. So... Here's this Elvis Presley character playing on his double pipes the new music and getting a huge, you know, theatre. How many people in the Athenian theatre? Perhaps 15,000 people roaring with applause. And yet Plato says this is stuff that should be banned. It's really bad. Well, we shouldn't follow that. We should say, look, there was a popular music which swept the boards. And as you say, Euripides, the most popular playwright after he died, he didn't win many prizes during his own uh, lifetime, but became by far the most popular of all the playwrights um, afterwards, and he's producing music of this kind. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to get uh, back to Plato, and in fact, uh, that's I, I think an interesting segue to Socrates and love. But I want to back up for a minute before we get there and, and mention a few things before we leave uh, rediscovering ancient Greek music. I want to highlight. These magnificent musicians, uh, Barnaby Brown and Callum Armstrong, who were who were playing some of this music, it was it was wonderful to listen to. It made me wonder a few things. It made me wonder how on earth, given the dearth of music that these guys play, and, and perhaps there's much more than I'm aware of, how could they have become so accomplished and so uh, so capable on their instruments? Uh, <laughs> And then it also made me wonder, as you were working on this reconstruction, how much interaction do you have with them? Is this happening more at a theoretical abstract level where you are uh, doing your analysis and then presenting them with things? Or are, is there give and take as, as it were, as if you were, you mentioned the Beatles, as if you were all members of a pop group and you were working together, trying to do your best to to add contributions here and there and have arguments about whether it should be this way or that way. What what was the process actually like? Okay, well, first of all, you're right. These people are miraculously 
fantastic pr practitioners. I mean, I cannot play the double pipes. <laughs> they can play the thing. They can make beautiful sounds on them. Uh, Callum can improvise magnificently. They have been playing their instruments, oboes and uh, bagpipes and so on, for you know for many many years and they've put in thousands of hours of practice to try and make good sounds on these instruments as well on these reconstructed ancient instruments so i mean they are genuine ancient instruments in terms of their shape and size and the position of the holes but they've had to experiment for a very long time and one of the main parts of that experimentation is creating reeds so they, they create their own reeds the mouthpieces that is for these instruments the mouthpieces are absolutely crucial to making a sound so that's that's one thing. They get their fingers around these things because they have that ability, you know, as as brilliant uh, wind players to to just practice until they feel they they're at home with those instruments. And then the process is, as you say, my theoretical work on the text of the music, then being presented to them to try and learn. And what I then have, of course, is is some feedback. So, in a way, the most interesting feedback uh, from them is whether or not it works on a particular instrument in a particular key. So they can tell me on this instrument, if you put it down into the lower key, then it works perfectly. This would have been the way to to play it. And so, uh, as I say, there's no such thing as absolute pitch. If you have an instrument on which a piece of music worked, undoubtedly that's what they would have done in the ancient world. They said, let's play it at this pitch. It's a quarter tone or a semitone lower than you might want to sing it uh, if, you were, if you had an absolute system, but, but that's what we've got. We've got this aulos, the Louvre aulos, which you know we've reconstructed, and with this reed, it works if you do it. So that's the kind of help they can do. Uh, they can give me uh, to tell me how, what the instrumental resources dictate so that they can use the music that I recreate. Um, because they're both musicians, they can also query some of the choices I make. If I'm saying, look, here's a, a gap, and I think it should be this note, they might say, well, actually, doesn't it make sense, given that you know what you did on that earlier bar, for this to be filled in this way? So yes, they can also do that kind of theoretical discussion with me. But essentially, what happened with the uh, Orestes Papyrus, which was the one with the most gaps, was that I had this insight that I was able to recreate a whole piece of music out of it. I did so. Uh, I, I gave it to Barnaby to play, and he, he, as I say, worked out what he thought was the right pitch at which it would work. And I then got some singers to try and sing it, and eventually we made a concert. But what I would say is that the concert, which then appears on Rediscovering Ancient Greek Music of 2017, it used a, a modern choir with modern uh, sounding voices and um, singing in equal tempered uh, um, scales. And of course, neither equal temperament nor this particular vocal production would have been known to the ancient Greeks. So I think there's a long way to go before we actually reconstruct the sound, the kind of sounds an ancient chorus would have made. Um, and you know, I think actually the instrumentalists are getting there, but we as uh, the singers have not yet. So my ethnographic interests are going to be to find folk singers in, in, in the Balkans or in, in Albania where they have a particular vocal production. They have a very harsh sounding uh, way of singing. I think that's much more what the ancient Greeks would have wanted to hear, uh, uh, voices that penetrate through 
these instrumental resources and also to do so in a um, non-tempered way. So, you know, pure tuning system uh, where you have pure fifths and only some uh, work, only some uh, keys work, not all the keys are going to work. So, let you know, I think there's a way to go in terms of timbres, in terms of actual proper um, melodic and harmonic sounds. But what I did is created, at least theoretically, the melodic uh, basis on which you might go forward the melodic score on which one might base a future performance. So, so how do, how does one go forwards from there? Do you do you as soon as the as soon as travel restrictions are lifted and perhaps they already are? Do you get on a plane and you go to Tirana and you you put an ad in the paper and you start or you start listening to people talk? I mean, how 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 does how does it work practically in order to find the sorts of people that you're interested in and in finding to help you move things along? Okay, well, there are always people who have been interested in these things, some of them are associated with universities, some of them who are folk musicians. So uh, when I was doing my research in 2013-14, I went to Sardinia and I met Luigi Lai, who is a player of the um, Sardinian Launedas. And Barnaby Brown had worked with Luigi Lai for two years, actually, in Sardinia, because he was learning these techniques of tonguing and so on that you do on the Launedas. And he could then apply all that to the double pipes. I mean, Luigi doesn't, and the Leonidas is not—it's uh, not a double reed instrument like the uh, like the Aulos. It's a single reed instrument, so it's it's a different tradition, but obviously one that's based on something quite similar. And certainly in terms of the fingering and the tonguing, it probably had an awful lot in common. Um, but actually, it was through interviewing Luigi Lai, who I actually found on YouTube looking up double pipe playing um, years ago. Um, that I then got in touch with Barnaby because Luigi Lai, who I met in Sardinia, said, well, talk to Barnaby Brown. You know, he's interviewed me, he's worked with me. And so I got in touch with Barnaby and, and then it was like, oh my God, this is someone who wants to learn the Aulos, who really does want to use those skills he's developed to try and get closer to the ancient music. So it was one of those things. And the same, so as you say, what do I do? Yes, I've applied for a three-year grant. These things are like, you know, hen's teeth, but it'd be lovely if I got it. But it would mean I, I go to Albania, I go to uh, Turkey, I go to Sardinia again, I go to Sicily, I go to various different places where there are already groups of people who are interested in folk music, who are interested in different double pipe traditions. And I meet them and I talk to them and I record them and I hear them sing and I hear them play. And I then try to use those insights to bring back and make them work with lots of pieces, which I still haven't yet reconstructed in the way that I did the Orestes. So yes, that's how, that's how it will work, I hope. I, I can't help adding this. Uh, I did notice that uh, on the video there was uh, a note that uh, aspects of that work was funded by the European Music Archaeology Project with support from the Culture Program of the European Union. So uh, it's just a shame you guys didn't have the uh, <laughs> the acuity to uh, to make the right decision there because presumably that would have assisted you, but uh, I'm, I'm, I won't belabor that point. Um, I, I do want to move to Socrates and Love, and I, and I will shortly, but uh, one final question about all of this, specifically with respect to this Orestes passage from Euripides that you mentioned and, and, and that music, what has been the response and the reconstruction thereof? What has been the response from your colleagues uh, in the world? So we, we've 
we began with a situation where the, the, the standard line was, this is impossible, it's a waste of time, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be trying to reconstruct things. You went ahead and did reconstruct things to a, a very significant extent. You wrote papers, you actually held performances. Granted, it's not exactly where you would like it to be, but it's, you've certainly, I, I think, have established a, a, a significant proof of concept. Has the response been, uh, oh, yes, Armand has really showed us the way he has, he has, he has done uh, wonderful work or, oh, that's all just speculative nonsense or, or what? What, what, is, what has the general response been from your professional colleagues uh, writ large to, to this work? It's a cautious acceptance. So um, the public response has been massive, as you probably can see from the videos, has had three quarter million views. A lot of people are bowled over by the idea that this reconstruction could even happen at all. And uh, I, I still daily get uh, requests to help with projects of all kinds, you know, semi-scholarly uh, staff, semi-people who are kind of involved in, in the musical world, or some people who are entirely musical, and of course a lot of scholars who are interested. So I have actually uh, just had a master's student who you know, completely bought into this. Um, but um, as regards you know, professionals, there aren't too many professionals in my position. And just to go back to a question you asked earlier, why did this not happen before since we had all the information? One of the main reasons, I think, is because scholars are quite cautious and they they find it very hard to stray from the scholarly tradition, which makes the discussion of this music so in, impenetrable. And it's much the same as I was saying about uh, meter. Uh, if you think that meter is all about learning terminology and talking about dactylic, tetrameter, catalectic, which is, you know, one metrical, uh, I mean, or, 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 you know, I could, uh, I give the example actually of the trochaic tetrameter catalectic, which is a metrical system that is simply this. Now, in order to analyze that, you say it consists of which is a trochee, four of those, and what the last one is cut off, which is called catalectic. But, you know, the matricians, the people who study meter, will talk about that. And everybody else won't know what they're talking about. But what they're saying is that there is a poem which was sung in that meter, in that rhythm. So right. they will then go into huge amounts of information and detail about where you find these dactylic tremor catalectics and when some of them are not as catalectic as others or when they have a, a beat missing. <laughs> and, and that is what metrical scholarship consists of. Well, it wasn't invented. Music was not invented for metrical scholarship. Music was not invented for musical scholars. <laughs> what I'm saying is a lot of the scholarship on music is itself impenetrable because they are trying to stick close to evidence and that evidence uses terminology. And if they, feel, if they, if they use a word that they feel doesn't conform to that terminology, terminology, they're worried that other scholars are going to say to them, you can't talk about scales. You know, you've got to talk about modes. You can't even talk about modes. You've got to talk about harmonii. You can't, you know. So that is what has happened for hundreds of years. The only people dealing with this stuff are those who feel that they have a familiarity with this impenetrable way of talking about it instead of thinking, ah, it's music. What did it sound like? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, to some extent, it's the inevitable 
difficulties of scholarship. Uh, as, as scholarship builds and builds and builds in whatever particular area it happens to be in, it naturally gets more specialized. There is a, a, a jargon, a nomenclature, which is, uh, which is developed, and often for very good reasons. People want to define their terms. They want to ensure that they are not speculating wildly, that they have some clear understanding of what it is that they're talking about. But often there is a danger as one progresses down that road of, of missing the forest for the trees. And you see this in, in all sorts of fields. I mean, everybody talks about the wonders of interdisciplinarity. Um, it's true that the great breakthroughs, as, as any academic administrator will tell you, oh, you should be more interdisciplinary because that's where the great breakthroughs come from. And that's, of course, true. It's tautologically true. It's tautologically true. What it means to be a great breakthrough is to see, to connect things that hadn't previously been connected. So that's obviously the case. But it doesn't mean that if you get an economist and a music theorist and a, and a you, you know, a, a cell biologist together, great things will necessarily happen. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's it's inevitable that, that I, I think people start speaking in a, in a deliberately well-defined way within a given construct and within a given language, but that obviously has a downside. So it's, it's I think it's all the more reason for, uh, for institutions such as Oxford to have the probity to do something like hire somebody who was both a classicist and a musician, because that, that, that gives you the opportunity of having what I would call a natural sort of interdisciplinarity. You don't, you don't have this artificial interdisciplinarity. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I mean, I think classics itself is interdisciplinary. There's language, there's literature, there's philosophy theory. In itself, it's a hugely interdisciplinary field. And people shouldn't be too specialized. So, uh, you know, I'm just a philosopher or I'm just a historian. Just to me, you're missing a lot because what you're doing is you're studying a world in which people were all sorts of things and they weren't technical philosophers. They might have been philosophers, but not in that way uh, that, you know, we then go, we learn more and more about less and less, as it were, and become great specialists in some area and fail to step back and take an overview uh, of what people really were on about. So um, I I think, you know, just to go back to the actual question of, of how it's been received cautiously, some people are very enthusiastic about it. Um, I am actually finding more and more with all my work that this is exactly the kind of reception I expect. And I think it's inevitable. If you do something that is new and sufficiently good, so obviously brand new, but not just based on airy-fairy speculation, but showing that you actually have done the work, it's it's not easy to dismiss. Some might, you know, there's always egos, people who've been working on this stuff for years who, I'm afraid it's even the case, uh, they will not cite my work because they think, you know, I don't want uh, this to kind of sully what I've been doing. Uh, but apart from that nonsense, uh, because I don't care about the ego issue, I'm trying to get to the truth. It sounds terribly old fashioned. To me, it's really exciting to think I might have got to something that is actually the case about ancient music. But uh, apart from that, I am being regularly cited and people are beginning to think about the things that I've said about the music of of ancient Greece. And I hope that people will build on it because it has to be a discussion. You do need people coming in and saying, well, just a moment, this is wrong, but this is right. You need that criticism. Well, you're clearly somebody who likes to speculate. So you used speculate in a pejorative sense. Perhaps it was the airy-fairy emphasis when you said airy-fairy speculation. But I would counter that so far as one is prepared to be rigorous and diligent and scholarly, and that's 
obviously all your work has that flavor. You're citing people left, right, center, and sideways. You're giving your interpretation. You're being forthright when you are speculating. That speculation in and of itself is essential. It's important. So this brings me to Socrates in Love. So Socrates in Love is filled with all sorts of speculations, and it makes it very enjoyable for the reader because you are following along with someone who is acting as uh, almost like an investigative journalist, as it were, like what I.F. Stone tried to do in the trial of Socrates and so forth. You are, try- you are making a reconstruction for which there is a paucity of direct evidence, and you are arguing that there is indirect evidence over here and over there, and you are trying to put the pieces together, and you are clearly doing so in a scholarly manner. And you were doing so, in my estimation, in a in a interestingly provocative manner, one of the things that struck me based upon what we uh, related rather to what we were saying about the new music was you speculated that Socrates may have opted to have learned the lyre or at least um, relearned plunge back into the musical world in order to become more familiar with or try to understand the new developments that were happening in the new music at that at that time. So you make these connections. Of course, you you admit that you're speculating. You don't know this for a fact. Th- these are uh, they're third party at best uh, <laughs> sources, and some of them are from people uh, obviously like Plato, who would have been uh, opposed to these <laughs> some of yeah. these developments anyway. But that's that has resonance to me as a reader because it makes these events that were happening at the time, it, it makes them more alive. It, it emphasizes the fact that there were these, uh, uh, th- there was a tumult related to new musical activities that were happening at this particular time. Mm-hmm. And perhaps Socrates was participating in that in, in his own way. Perhaps he wasn't, but it certainly emphasizes um, the, the historical context in which these events were actually happening. Presumably that's what you had meant to provoke as a response in a reader, but, but maybe not. So let me just ask you, was that, is yeah. that the sort of thing that you were hoping a reader will say to you when, when you encounter him? Uh, yes, I mean, up to a point. I mean, I think uh, I, I would say it's less speculative than you're implying. I mean, um, and I'll tell you why. Um, we don't know for certain because we're never told that uh, Socrates, um, let's say, um, I mean, you know, think of anything that a human being uh, might do that, you know, we're not told that Socrates ever went to the loo. <laughs> uh, and the scholarly argument is if we're not told it, it's somehow wrong to suggest that it happened. So we don't learn a lot, for example, about Socrates' behavior as a boy um, or, as a, or even as a, as a young man. But we know he had to have been a boy and a young man, okay? Sure. And, and this is, I suppose, where I feel I come in and I say, look, he wasn't always the philosopher he became, let alone the one that people saw him as afterwards. So what was he before that? Because he had to be something before that. And you can therefore look at circumstantial evidence as well as some, well, I don't know, you call it indirect evidence, but I mean, I think there's direct evidence. And uh, so um, uh, take take the musical thing, which is an interesting one. And in fact, it's caused a bit of, a tiny bit of scholarly controversy. And I'll tell you why. So what we have is that in the same year in which a play was put on by Aristophanes, 423 BC, 
called The Clouds, in which Socrates is the central figure. And he is portrayed as a boffin who is teaching all kinds of rather disreputable behaviors to his students um, and teaching uh, an old man how to argue his way out of debt, amongst other things. Um, In that same year, in that same festival, another play, we are told, was put on uh, called Connus. And Connus was the name of a famous avant-garde music teacher of the day who Plato tells us, in Socrates' words, was Socrates' teacher. So Socrates as um, a an adult learner, Socrates uh, doing things in his, in this particular case, in his 40s, uh, this is in 423 BC he would have been, um, and a play which actually does better in the festival than uh, Aristophanes' Clouds, um, uh, with the title of a music teacher known to Socrates, and we're told that Socrates appeared in it. So the obvious thing is that Socrates is being taught music, and if it's to be a comedy, he's obviously going to make a bit of a hash of it. So that's about as far as one might speculate, but very reasonably. Uh, but then you ask yourself, well, if Socrates was known to have had this avant-garde music teacher, was it the first time he was taught music? Well, then this goes back to what I'm saying is as a young man, if he came from a certain background, uh, which was uh, reasonably well off, he would have been taught the lyre as a young man. And there's a comment he makes in a platonic dialogue which suggests that his teacher was Connus and not someone else called Lampros, who was a famous teacher. But actually you think, well, why would anybody, why would Plato make him make that comment? I actually put uh, two and two together and did speculate that actually Socrates did have a teacher, did also get taught when he was young by Lampros. If it's not true, then he would have been taught by someone who taught him old-fashioned ways of playing music. And then it makes sense to me that if he's talking about a teacher in his 40s, it's not because he does, you don't pick up the lyre and say, teach me how to play the lyre in your 40s, unless you already know how to play it. You do so because like Barnaby Brown, you already know how to play the bagpipes and you want to learn how to play the aulos. Right. So that is what I, you see, a lot of this is about making connections, which to me seem completely reasonable and understandable. Um, I think we have a different different view on the nature of speculation, but uh, it's certainly not an attack. Uh, I'll let you know when I'm attacking you. This that that wasn't it. Um, you never explained what what the controversy was. Uh, or at least well, I, the I controversy was just in one reviewer who picked up that he was a scholar, and he actually completely missed, as you put it, the forest for the trees because he he decided on the basis of one or two things, which were clearly me being going beyond the evidence in some way, in fact, contradicting it. And that was one, that the book itself must be insufficiently scholarly. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, he... he... Oh, but one, one crusty academic does not make a controversy. No, I mean, no, gosh, no, you guys are awfully thin-skinned if that's what, if that's what makes a controversy. Okay, I mean, sorry. You would no, expect no, that. You would expect that. No, you're right. It isn't the It's just I felt I had to answer him, uh, though, in fact, I probably don't, and explain my reasoning as to why... I think Socrates learned the lyre as a young man, probably from Lampros. But that's, you know, that's a tiny little point in the in in the whole. But you can't write a book off on the basis of, you know, saying 
actually, he says the opposite. He says, my teacher was Connus and not Lampros. I mean, uh, what I've just explained to you explains why I think he had the other guy as his teacher. But, you know, he doesn't say so. We, we learn the opposite. So, no, no there has been, I wouldn't say that other than that there's been controversy. It's been fantastically well received. There have been 20 really glowing reviews of it. So I'm, I'm by no means, you know, I want to try and, and, and work out whether people buy the notion that Socrates as a young man was not the philosopher he became. And if not, what is the evidence for what sort of young man he was? And the standard view that he must have been, because he was later impoverished, he must have been a, from a very poor background. His father, who's described as a stonemason, everybody said, oh, well, he must have been terribly poor. It seems to me there's no evidence at all that he was ever very poor. In fact, all the evidence points to the fact that he had a wealthy background and upbringing. And therefore, let's re-understand, let's re-imagine what we mean by a stonemaker at a time when Athens is building so much in stone. Right. Was a wealthy stonemason, probably owned slaves. So I'm I'm supportive of that, but uh, let let me tell you what particularly interests me. So the detective side of things. I, first of all, uh, I'm I'm all for uh, scholarly speculation, as I would call it. Uh, I think there's not enough of it. I think as long as people are prepared to explicitly, do you know what they have confidence in and why and cite their sources, then they should do that as much as possible. And you do that. So I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. I have a a different perspective. When I was reading this, I thought, here is this individual who is going beyond the stereotypes. And you cite all sorts of people who use the stereotypes. So with, uh, for, for their own ends. So whether it's Nietzsche who wants to say this person is a low-born poor individual who should be ignored for this reason or that reason, or whether it's your your standard philosophical diehard Platonist who, who just wants to espouse Platonistic philosophy and doesn't want to imagine mm-hmm. that any there could be anything in the historical record that could somehow go against interpretations of a Platonic dialogue or what have you. There was a historical Socrates. He was a human being. Uh, he wasn't a, a, a cardboard cutout. And as a human being, of course, he evolved. Of course, he was different when he was younger than when he was older. And let's try to go through the sources and to try to imagine, based upon reasonable suppositions and available evidence, what I might call indirect or direct or, or, or what have you, as to what was uh well, what was, thank you. What was, what was going on at the time? But uh, so I find this fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but why? So some people would find it fascinating in and of itself. Let's try to imagine and recreate this figure called Socrates. I personally, I, that's people are welcome to do that. That doesn't actually turn my crank. I don't particularly care one way or the other. What what I well, I'm willing to to accept the portrayal that that you give at the end when you summarize the various investigations that you have done and paint a picture of, of Socrates and uh, throughout his life. Let's just take that on faith and assume that that's the God's honest truth. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, so what? So here's mm-hmm. my sense of so what? Mm-hmm. My sense of so what is this will help us, this will inform our understanding of this time and place, not just about this one individual Socrates, but about the, the intellectual currents that were dominant during that time the controversies, the difficulties, 
the, the divergencies of, uh, of views. And reading this book, what it made me think of was a previous conversation that I had with your erstwhile supervisor, Richard Janko. And during that uh, a conversation, uh, which was about the Drabani papyrus, he was giving his interpretation of 5th century, the latter part of 5th century BC Athens, and his belief that there was effectively a culture war, that he was of the, he was of the view that there was a, a rift in the society from those who were of a rigorous naturalistic scientific orientation as embodied in someone like Anaxagoras. Mm-hmm. And there were people who were offended by that because they were of a conservative religious traditionalist persuasion mm-hmm. and in fact the 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 trial and and subsequent death of socrates should be looked upon as as not just one uh, exceptional data point as it were but but a reflection of a general prevailing societal trend mm-hmm. that was happening at at that time and much of what i read in socrates in love was was reasonably supportive of that particular orientation, at least in some parts. I mean, you you talk about again uh, this this uh, I think it was from Plutarch this uh, this anecdote of Anaxagoras with the ram's horn and and the different interpretations of this and and so forth. So so what I'm saying is, uh, and I'm rambling. I, I tend to do that. I apologize. Um, but what what was most interesting to me was uh, was not, uh, did Socrates get his ideas from Aspasia or did he not get his ideas from Aspasia? Or to what extent, you know, what was he like as a young man? And, and did he have a, a moment in his life where he flipped from one extreme to the other and stopped caring about glory and wanted to care about uh, uh, purifying his soul or what have you? What, what was most interesting to me as I was reading this is a depiction of prevailing currents of thought and uh, that were happening in that in that period of time and i thought to some extent uh, what you're doing will better inform our understanding of this time and place in order to provide uh, a historical context mm-hmm. so i guess i will now finally come to two questions so the first question is do you agree uh, that that's in fact part of your motivations in doing this. And second of all, I want to return to this this thesis, as I understood it, by Richard Janko of a society that was more fractured than is currently acknowledged in terms of naturalistic versus traditional religious perspectives. And 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 where do you fall on that? Okay, so take the first one. Um, I, I like the fact that throughout you have used the word imagine, because I think imagination is what we're talking about so rather than speculation. One is trying to Im- imagine oneself back into that world in which, as you say, there were different currents of thought and lots of people doing lots of different things. So you could be a soldier and a thinker. You know, it wasn't a uh, there wasn't a professional system in the way that we have now. There wasn't so much specialization. So imagining oneself back into that and seeing how it all fits together is definitely one of the things I want to do because I think that's, you know, that is recreating a world which we see so little of um, apart from in, you know, literally imaginative recreations like films and so on, um, which I'm all for, by the way. And, you know, one of my great heroes as a writer is... Uh, is the historian Tom Holland, who I think, you know, he he approaches history from the point of view of someone who can imagine what it was actually like being there at the time. 
and he does a fantastic job of it. And so I would say that, you know, insofar as my book follows any model, it was that even more than I.F. Stone. He gave you a wonderful blurb, by the way. So you must have been gratified by that. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Thank you. He did. He did. He, he is a terribly generous man. And uh, I, I said, you know, uh, what do you think of the book? And he said, you know, you opened my eyes to uh, something I never thought could be done, which was so, so sweet of him. Um you know, uh, but really, I mean, he is a, he's a tremendous hero of mine. I think he's he's done an amazing job on so many different areas of history. I love his book, The Fire and the Sword, about Islam. is extraordinary. But anyway, um, he, uh, yeah, so he, he's, he's sort of imaginative thinker that I, I would like to, to be, scholarly thinker. Um, as regards the, the, the issue of the social rift you might say i see it differently from richard um i don't i don't think it was as intellectual as he makes out i mean i make the point throughout my book that the athenians were a pretty superstitious society i mean they were this is a religious world this is a world in which there are herms on every street corner there are festivals for half the year there are gods there are temples there are sacrifices going on all the time there's a tiny proportion of that society who are intellectuals who are saying things like the gods don't actually exist you know they are figures of speech the, these are uh, you know they can be made fun of or they can be accused of blasphemy i certainly don't agree with richard that the trial of socrates was a religiously inspired one. It was not at all. It was a cover for an obvious political argument with him. He was seen to be part of the people who tried to subvert uh, Athenian democracy because he taught people like Alcibiades. That's absolutely clear. I think Stone was right about that. He was seen as as a political danger and, and flashpoint in some ways, unfairly, I think. But nonetheless, that's why... He was put on trial, but of course the amnesty meant he couldn't be accused of having committed those crimes under the oligarchy. So instead they picked up on uh, these kind of crimes of blasphemy and sacrilege and not believing the city's gods. Um, And I think it's quite rare to find someone who is both accused of those things and then put to death and executed for them. So I do think he's a very unusual um, expression of Athenian anger at, you know, what had preceded politically, because one has to try and imagine these things. You know, think of, I don't know, Venezuela under Maduro, or or, uh, families who have disappeared, say, because, you know, one government organization decides they are anti-us, and the whole place is is suffering because of poverty and so on. So after the Peloponnesian War, you've got this in Athens. You've got people who are suffering, you've got people remembering that their fathers and brothers and wives and sisters were killed by those who had been on the other side. And the other side were those oligarchic supporters, as they were thought of, the oligoi, the few, who were associated with Socrates' followers, people like Critias in particular. You know, Critias and Alcibiades, we're told by Aeschines a few decades later, were the reason that Socrates was executed. So you can see there's a sense that this man, this ghastly know-all who goes around talking to people, has made life hell for us in the past 
decade. And we can't put him on trial for being that because we've all agreed there's going to be an amnesty. But let's let's find a reason for to get him executed. And then he doesn't help himself because he says, well, you know, you really ought to give me a reward for what I've been doing. Right, right. And Cato thinks the whole thing is desperately unfair. So that's what I think is going on in this particular case. And I think it is sufficiently a one-off for us not to say this was about a rift between the religious types and the non-religious types. They were all religious types. Even Socrates was a religious type from what Plato tells us. You know, he, he worships the, the, the Zeus and Apollo. He talks about them very respectfully and he, he does a prayer to the sun in the symposium. He's not someone who's kind of an atheist in the sense of even the atheists of the Devaney Papyrus, someone who believes the God don't actually exist, but who, you know, that they're figures of speech. One of the things that was very instructive to me, and I'm sure you and your colleagues take this for granted, but for someone who's not a classicist and who is not daily immersed in that society, in that world, your book brought home the difficulties of living in Periclean Athens. And there is a sense that people have, I think many people have, of this shining city on a hill version of Athenian democracy, that this was the, the um, a, a glittering, wonderful, original instantiation of our democratic traditions. And Pericles was this noble individual who could do no wrong, the progenitor of our our modern system of government and so forth and so on. So I'm not mm. implying that that was all uh, that's completely wrong or that there's nothing positive to extract from that and, and that we should all revert to oligarchy or monarchy or anything like that. But what is very clear from the book is how militaristic Athens is even before the Peloponnesian War mm. or the official Peloponnesian War. I know you guys start calling it First Peloponnesian War and Second and, and all the rest of that. But I mean, the general view that somebody who has some reasonable historical understanding of that period is the Persians came in 490, then they came again in 480, they were rebuffed both times. And then there was this 50-year period of, of peace. And then there was the Peloponnesian War and, and, and so forth. And it ended with, as you say, the, the 30 tyrants and all the rest of this for a few yeah. years. And then they were kicked out. And then eventually uh, you're, you're at the, almost at the turn of the, uh, uh, of the fourth century. Um, but in reality, and you, you point to all sorts of military activities mm. as part of your argument that Socrates must have been participating in this and he must have been participating mm -hmm. in that and mm. you you claim that no he wasn't actually uh, participating in this and that and the other no. but it, it becomes extremely clear that there was a cascade of militaristic activity um, much of much of them were brutal there were brutal yeah. uh, terrible inhumane reprisals that were happening on a on a regular basis as it were and that this was hardly a situation of unbridled prosperity and peace mm. and and social harmony mm. uh, within the Greek world. And that's, I think, that too deserves to be highlighted, at, at least for people who are not specialists in that particular area, because it gives you a sense that it wasn't... I think normally in the popular consciousness, when people think of a demagogue, they think of Cleon, and that's it. Um, whereas in reality, uh, there were aspects of, of, of uh, Pericles' behavior that were that were uh, that were reprehensible uh, to a tremendous extent. Totally, totally. No, I mean, I think I think you're right, and I think that um, when one gets into the history of the period, uh, then you realise that 
what you say is the sort of surface understanding of the golden age with Pericles presiding in this magisterial way is just all rubbish. <laughs> that actually Pericles, <laughs> you know, from when he started out being a young politician, a young abrasive politician, by the way, because Ian Ion of Chios, who I mentioned as one of the early sources, says, you know, he was an impolite, impudent young man. But, you know, is is trying to get popular support for all kinds of behavior. Uh, and in order to do so, he's becoming an arch-democrat, despite his own aristocratic background. Uh, he's, you know, giving pay to people to attend jury courts and generally flattering the masses in order because they now have one man, one vote. So if he wants to get voted, right. he's, he's got to he's got to buy them. And um, of course, what happens is that after, as you say, the uh, Persians go. Uh, are rebuffed uh, after Plataea in, in 479, then Athens is doing everything to, to one, defend itself, but really, two, to build the empire on which that defence is based. And very early on, it decides that people who decide not to be part of the League, you know, the, the, the alliance of Greek states against some potential future um, Persian incursion, uh, very, very quickly, those... Islands are put down brutally, Naxos and Thassos and others, which you know decide oh, I don't want to pay tribute in order to defend the Greeks against the Persians. I mean, I kind of I quite like the Persians actually. You know, Thess- Thessaly, um, Thebes, these were large Greek conurbations, and they decided to side with the Persians during the so-called Persian Wars. The Greeks were not a united body, and so. Um, when Athens starts to sort of sail around the world, destroying these communities, and, you know, standardly in the ancient world, they were horrible. They decided they didn't like the way that the people of Naxos were behaving. You imagine this little Greek island with, you know, it's supposed to send loads of silver to Delos in order to support the cause. And then they decide, look, we don't want to do this, or whatever it was, loads of, you know, of, of bushels of wheat and so on. And they say, okay, we're not doing it. And then Athenian warships turn up and they kill the men and they enslave the women and they chop up the land and give it to Athenian settlers. And they do this time and time and time again in the course of the century. And Pericles is is ahead of it. Look what he does on Samos. He brands these people. He uses, you know, hot brands to put, it's a bit like they did in Auschwitz. Terrible behavior. He, he, He crucifies the commanders of the other side. Um, so <laughs> I just think, you know, we've got a very, I mean, recently, actually, I think about 10 years ago, um, the demographers who look at ancient Athens say there were probably no more than about, th- in the height of Athens, thirty or 40,000 adult male citizens, the people who were entitled to have a vote and who had a say and who, who um, ran everything. There were as many as quarter of a million slaves even the poorest Athenian citizen had slaves. Yeah. These are people who are captured in war, sometimes from other Greek city-states, and made to work and given their feed and brutalized, raped at will. This is not a, a pleasant, happy, golden world. But despite all that, a few extraordinary thinkers, a few amazing writers and musicians and artists seem to come to the surface. And they're the ones who give us this impression of our golden age. And of course, you know, you could say Pericles building the Parthenon was like, you know, Nazi uh, architecture, trying to 
to glorify the city in which he lives and probably using the uh, money of the Allies' tribute to do that. And so, of course, this survives as this wonderful monument, uh, the whole of the Acropolis and all these wonderful buildings. But actually, of course, at the same time, there are great artists like Phidias and great architects like Ictinus and so on who are producing these marvels. And how did they do it? Unfortunately, we don't know quite as much as we would like to. I mean, there aren't any, you know, plans. There must have been plans. There aren't any, um, you know, um, templates for trireme building. And yet we know that must have happened in the in the shipyards which have recently been discovered in the Piraeus. So all that stuff needs to come together, really, and not just look at the elite and the top um productions of the artistic life of Periclean Athens and say this was a golden society which produced wonderful plays. Even those plays indicate the amount of brutality and killing and, and sadness. Yeah. And in fact, there were many critics you mentioned that uh, often Aspasia was used as a as a vehicle to to attack Pericles yes. through the comedies as yeah. a, because it was considered presumably safer she wasn't athenian and 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 therefore and she was a woman and so therefore they could get away with directing their their vitriol which was really meant to be directed towards pericles mm-hmm. towards her yeah uh, so uh you've been extremely generous with your time i'm not going to keep you here for uh for the rest of the day you'll be glad to know yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't have time to talk about uh the greeks and the new mm-hmm. uh, and innovation but i have seen that you are coming out with a new book called How to Innovate an, an Ancient Guide to Creating Change. So my skeptical, knowing uh, a few academics and and knowing a little bit about the publishing industry, my skeptical side to me is crying out, well, what this guy is doing is he's taking this ancient scholarly work that he's doing, he's putting a sexy how-to manual in it, he's trying to... to to sell it to the masses as, uh, as you know, the Greeks can tell you how to live your life properly and how to start a successful business. To what extent is my skepticism justified? And has your uh, thinking, have your ideas about innovation and the Greek world, have they changed since you wrote The Greeks and the New? Okay, so let, let me first say, I, I certainly hope that this will be a book for the masses. And uh... <laughs> I, I myself didn't create the how-to series. It's a Princeton series. There's how to win an argument, how to think about this, that, and the other. And uh, they came to me with this proposition of how to innovate. It's probably not would have what I would have called it. I would have called it how to think about the new. But, of course, you can't do that if you're going to do a popular kind of airport <laughs> book, are you? Uh, and, of course, there is a business element to it. And, you know, this goes back to the fact that I was in business for 10 years, for God's sake. So it's not as if I'm a stranger to the idea of innovation being a crucial element of you know the modern business world and one that actually spurred me to do my doctoral work on how the Greeks felt about innovation and why they innovated so much during the classical period uh, and um, and to find some genuinely new ways of seeing that the Greeks were not what had been generally assumed and often still is today, entirely based on traditions and the past, always looking back and never thinking about, you know, this is going to be better and and there's going to be progress and, you know, we can innovate and we can make money. Of course they were thinking those things. And it made sense that they were thinking. And, and, you know, as I said, you know, how could they have been so innovative over those few hundred years in in philosophy and drama and medicine and science and all kind in you know, logic, they, all the things they invented, had they not thought actually 
novelty of so, in some cases is good. So yeah, that was the basic theme of my uh, my work on the Greeks and the New. Uh, and I looked at it from all kinds of different angles in that book, uh, Cambridge 2011. Um, but I did think that actually it was possible to summarize some of the findings in a way that might be useful for people asking well, how do I innovate? You know, how do I even start? I would love to be innovative. You know, is there a secret to it? And actually, there probably is a secret to it. But at the same time, when you look at how people innovate in ancient Greece, you can actually work out principles, which I realize are very, very basic and simple. And every kind of innovation partakes of these principles. And I sum them up as four. And this is what the book tells you. There are four principles. One is creating the conditions. And creating conditions, of course, within those principles are very complex. That might mean creating the conditions for society to be innovative, i.e. ease of communication. So the invention of the alphabet, the use of papyrus that I was talking about, is one of the conditions for things to you know, to be able to circulate in such a way that you can create new things by seeing what's going on, or you can create individual conditions by, you know, really studying something intensely and then going and relaxing or going to the gym or going for a run. We know these things work when people come up with new ideas for innovation to work. You need a broad sense of things being uh, in a condition for them to innovate. And one of them is thinking that innovation is possible. So actually, even part of the whole Athenian social uh, um, approach was, you know what, we can actually innovate in military terms or in religious terms. This is very much part of the way we think. And competition, of course, is another. And they were very competitive. So all these things sum up, that's my first principle, set those conditions. And here are what we find those conditions are, uh, were then and still could be today in order for for. Um, innovation to take place. And once you've got that, that's principle one, you've got three mechanisms. One is what you've been talking about a lot, connecting things, connecting disparate things. So we find, I give examples from, say, ancient Greek sculpture, where they connected the sculpture that they inherited from Egypt, which was very static, with the beauty of the moving bodies that they saw in their athletic games. And the sinews and the muscles that they were dissecting in the Hippocratic doctoral uh, studies of their day. So these things come together and you then they then create fluid sculpture. And it's like overnight, you know, sixth century archaic Greek sculpture is like Egyptian sculpture, fifth century sculpture, you know, the Critias boy, Myron's discus throw and so on. These are beautiful sculptures which have not been better. So connection, one big first mechanism principle. Second principle, disruption. Do it differently. Do it the opposite. Reverse it. Criticize. Again, we're talking about um, my ancient music uh, projects, and I was saying I'm, it's a discussion. I want people to criticize because by criticizing, we come to new ideas. So um, disrupt, turn around, reverse. And I give an example of warfare, a famous example of the Battle of Leuctra in 371, when the Thebans suddenly become the, the victors in the Greek world because Epaminondas, their general, puts his best fighters on the wrong side of the phalanx and completely disrupts the Spartans, who always thought themselves the best fighters, because their best fighters can't get through that side. <laughs> so 
you know, it's it's a simple um, demonstration, which businessmen love, by the way. I've given that one to business. You know, you just show a, a diagram of these two rugger scrums and everybody always, the Spartans are always winning because their best fighters break through. But suddenly their best fighters don't break through and the Thebans win against much greater odds. So disruption reversal, you know, this is well known in the business world. This is an example from the ancient world. And then the third mechanism is adaptation, which just means building on what there is. It's just the standard way which you take something and you add something, you augment it a little bit, you you tweak it. You know, it's what Steve Jobs said, all I do is I take something and I tweak it, and, and that's what makes for my novelty. You know, so uh, those three, connection, disruption, adaptation, join them to conditions in which innovation can flourish, and you have everything, I think, that is innovation. I mean, yes, of course, there are hundreds and thousands of permutations of of these principles. But they're all there and they're all to be seen in the innovative uh, products of ancient Greece. And that is what I have done for this book. I've kind of summarized a few things by telling stories. And that's the other thing, by the way, that I think I've learned. (laughs) People want stories. They don't really want to learn uh, too much uh, factual stuff. But if you can get facts over by telling a good story, I think you're onto something. So the intended audience of the book is who exactly? Are we looking at people who are interested in the notion of innovation and want to learn how to innovate better themselves? Are we looking at people who are curious about learning about tangible examples of innovation in the ancient Greek world? Are you interested in trying to develop a more coherent, synoptic uh, understanding of what innovation means by citing examples from the ancient Greek world. So I'm, I'm trying to explore your motivations. You want it to be, you want everyone to hear about it. You want to tell stories. You want, you want everyone to be transfixed and educated in a painless way about the, the classical world. Mm-hmm. You want to be a best-selling author. I get all of those things, mm-hmm. but what sort of impact are you looking to gain from this particular book and who is the intended audience? Um, so I think all of the things that you mentioned are absolutely what I was thinking. Uh, I want um, to try and <clears throat> present my research in a way that is very uh, palatable to a much broader audience. Um, I, I, I'd like to turn people on to the classical world, actually, and the classical Greek world in particular, by showing them this kind of reality. But uh, yeah, I do genuinely think that I'm onto something with my analysis of the ancient world as um, saying something about what it means to innovate. And, um, you know, one of the things Aristotle says uh, is that uh, sometimes innovation isn't a good thing. <laughs> so I, I actually quite like people to think about that as well. I mean, you know, some some things are good to renew and other things actually good to, to keep as, as they are. Uh, so there are all kinds of... of you know, rationales for presenting this stuff. Um, one thing I've done is I've actually set up a website called eurekainnovation.com on which I've, I, what I'd love is to have case studies of people who feel that these are indeed the conditions and mechanisms which have led to either other people's innovations or their own innovations so that I can say, look, yeah, this is a clear case, and you know there are obviously some standard cases used in business schools of uh, adaptation creating an innovation, or disruption creating one, or um, or, or um, 
connections uh, from disparate sources coming together and making. So one could put those on. But I also want, I don't know the answer to this. Is it possible to say on the basis of thinking about this analytically, you could actually help people to become innovators? I think possibly you can. Um, and I think that some of my own work has been, if not consciously using these principles, at least semi-consciously, you know, thinking, well, actually, if I connect this to that, then something new will emerge in my thinking. And, you know, clearly it's the case with the ancient music that was clear straight away that, you know, the connection between my musical interests and my classical interests could produce something that was very different from what has been produced. Um, Most of what scholars do is incrementalist. They work on other people's ideas and they put it one further. Clearly what I've done with Socrates is disruptive. It's turned around commonplace views of Socrates as, as this old guy by thinking what was he like as a young man and looking at the evidence in a new light as a result of that. Um, so I, I could, you know, I could demonstrate a lot of this from my own experience, but I'd love to see if other people could say, well, you know what, that's inspired me to think differently about the way I said about innovating and it's actually worked. And if that happens, I'll be just delighted. Wonderful. Anything else? Anything I missed or or you'd like to comment on further? Um, uh, no, I mean, I think it's been a great conversation. Thank you. And thank you very much for all the effort you've put into on trying to understand what I do. Oh, it's fun. I mean, you do, you do, you do really interesting work. So it was a real joy for me. Oh, that's, it's really great that some people do take such a, an interest in everything that I find really interesting. Um, I mean, I suppose one thing I, I might just say is that as a classicist, you know, I probably am quite old fashioned because a lot of classics nowadays is trying to renew the subject rather than find new things within the subject. And um, I'm just not that interested in that. I just think I think there's still things are things to find out about the ancient world that are fascinating and important. And that's always been what I've done. It's a kind of slightly as you say, detective problem-solving approach. You know, here's a question we have about the ancient world. Is there a way of finding an answer to it? And I've done that in a minor way by, say, reconstructing a famous poem by Sappho on the basis of little bits of evidence that we can find from the Roman poet Catullus. Um, and one of my first pieces, in fact, my very first published article was on an ancient dance called the Dithyram, which, um, you know, there was a papyrus talking about it, but it had holes in it. And I wanted to find out what those holes said, but at the same time to understand the significance for the wider society. And so that article, How the Dithyram Got Its Shape, which I published in 1997, is still one of my favorite articles because it brings together so many different aspects of, of philological and historical and musical ideas in order to show something that I think is the case. So that is what I would say. I'm looking for, in an old-fashioned way, some kind of truth in history, something that we haven't yet seen, something that makes us excited when we do see it. And I hope I'll continue to be able to do that. I hope you will as well. Are, are you concerned? Just one, one more question as you're talking. I was prompted to think of something else. It's wonderful to be 
excited by the classical world. It's wonderful to to have the desire to look at it in a different way. Uh, and again, one of the things that you so evidently are committed to doing, which I personally applaud, is to treat these individuals as as individuals, as people, as as human beings like you and me who lived in a different time in a different place. But uh, there's a, to really establish again this sense of connection, rather than look at it as a, a old, old, musty, uh, uh, well established set of facts or knowledge. To look with fresh eyes and to be able to uh, reinvigorate what they had thought or might have thought as well from our own perspective. I mean, that's what the humanities does. Every generation, of course, there are new people looking at it who, who bring their own perspectives, their own orientations, their own beliefs, their desire, and their own knowledge. But in order to do that, we need to have the tools. We need to have the skills. And you mentioned how you were very fortunate to have had such a great education, have not just the love of the the Latin and Greek language, but actually the language itself, the tools of the language instilled in you from a very young age. My guess is you don't see a whole lot of that happening these days uh, on Gros. Uh, and, and, And I think, in fact, things are going in the other direction. I was reading a piece I think it was in The Economist that a famous uh, university in the United States, Howard University, I think, eliminated their uh, mm-hmm. their classics department, mm-hmm. let alone teaching at a grammar school level for children and so forth. How might we be able to go forwards to even developing the tools as a society? And I and I'm, I'm, I'm guess I'm speaking on a planetary level now. I'm not speaking country by country because it's all very well and good to say I care about the ancient world or I like the ancient world or I want to understand this. But if we don't have the ability to be able to immerse ourselves in the language and the culture, then we're just dependent on people like yourself to be able to just tell us the way it is. Sure. Um, and and then we're just repeating your insights. We're not able to develop our own. So one of the things I didn't mention is that for the last um, seven years, I've been deeply involved in the UK in um, a scheme called Classics for All, which has been sewing into the state school sector um, teachers who can start youngsters on Latin. And we've got to about 100,000 kids. Really? 100,000? Wow. And in seven years, we've done about 100,000 kids who are at least have the rudiments of the language being taught by teachers in 7,000, now 7,000 schools we've got to, uh, uh, voluntary groups, um, you know, of perhaps as few as two or as many as seven or eight, uh, after school or in out of school hours. Uh, so we, uh, Classics for All is a charity, um, we uh, train the teachers who want to do it, so they apply to uh, the scheme. They get we give a thousand pounds. We give them books and training, and they can then teach. And they might be French or maths teachers. They don't have to have done any Latin themselves. So it's a start. And then those kids are beginning to start wanting to do it at higher levels. And the UK government yesterday announced that they're doing a pilot. They're putting four million into it for forty state schools to teach Latin. So obviously it's going to depend on the right kind of teaching. So the other major scheme I've been involved in the last few years, and I'm bringing this to Oxford, I hope, in a big way, is what's called active Latin. I am teaching Latin, speaking in Latin. My students are speaking back to me in Latin. We are reading, discussing philosophical and literary and other points in Latin. It's made, I mean, I've done Latin for so many years, but it took me 
at least three years to get to a point where I felt I could speak it reasonably fluently. Um, but the people who are starting are getting there very quickly and they're really excited by it. And we're doing it in my college at Oxford and we are hoping to expand it to the whole of Oxford. I'm, this is one of, you know, before I retire, I want this to be a new approach to Latin. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I thought you were never going to retire. Do they? Do they? They, fall, do they make yeah. you people. They make you people retire in Oxbridge. Do they? They put it this way. They there's been a voluntary agreement by members of colleges of which, you know, you're signed up to it whether or not you voted for it. That you have to go at sixty nine. <laughs> oh. So. You know, I've got maybe another six or seven years, but anyway. Uh, but before I go from from because you know, once you're out of your uh, of your professorship or whatever, you're a nobody. It's a terrible thing. I mean, I know really terrific emeritus professors who would love to keep on working in England, but they just you know they're nobodies. It's as if oh well, yes, you used to be important. Anyway, so I realise that anything I'm doing, I have to do while I still got this silly title in front of me. But yes. Well, I should I should let you go then and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and change the world. But, but no, but I do I do think this is going to make a difference. Um, and you know, there was a huge Twitter storm about it all yesterday because, of course, it's our Tory government who's introduced this thing. But of course, that doesn't mean it's a bad idea just because it's been introduced by a you know, shambolic government. It's a really good idea to try and teach youngsters Latin for all the reasons you mentioned. Because if they then they'll get those tools. And part of the conditions of my book you know, how to innovate, the conditions are that you've got to know what you're doing. I mean, you can't innovate from nothing. You can't move on. You can't adapt something if you haven't got something. It all depends on something existing. And you therefore have to have that knowledge base. I can't believe this, Armand. I mean, we've been talking for two and a half hours and you had me all the way through until you started citing a Twitter storm. And, and now, <laughs> now you just, you've just lost all credibility with me. I mean, <laughs> yes. Well, I'm afraid. I mean, I'm afraid I've lost all credibility with my wife. The very fact I'm on that. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and I got onto it in 2012 in a very small way because I had a, a book publicist. Poor thing has died, died since. Who said, "Oh, you've got to get on Twitter if you want to sell any books." And it was terribly tame in those days. And I did it for a bit, and I thought, "I'm not selling any books. Via, you know, I'm not going to sell the Greeks and the New from Twitter." I tried. And then suddenly things blew up for various reasons. Um, and uh, I've got 11,000 followers. So what, I'm, I'm considered almost an influencer in, in the, you know, anyone over 10,000. Influ- it's a trap. It's a trap. You see, now, now they're, they're sucking away your time for doing something meaningful. Really so that's good. My, that, that's, my, that's, my, that's my parting shot to you. But it's been, it's been an, an enormous pleasure for me speaking to you. And, uh, and I wish you all the best in your, Thank you. in your wonderfully varied uh, I hope you get something out of this, will you? What, what do you mean? You hope I get something out of that? You've just turned it around. You've thrown, that's the worst. We've talked for two and a half hours, and you just asked me if you hope we'll get something out of it. We'll get the whole damn thing. Oh, good, People good, will good. be forced to listen to this. <laughs> As they're as they're walking to school, oh good! As they're riding their exercise bike, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know how these things work, but I hope that they'll find what I say interesting. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will because we 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 have a, we're growing a, a following of very distinguished and discerning individuals, many of whom I've heard are not even on Twitter. <laughs> well, I'm afraid I'm going to tweet this as soon as it's out. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and uh, and uh, I, I hope we'll, we'll have a chance to actually meet in person one day. I hope we will. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.